I said, Matthew is still on vacation, and we have the privilege this morning of listening to or hearing to Seth Enderby as he comes and brings us God's Word. So let's jump into Luke 7.11. Here's what it says. It says, Soon afterward, he, being Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him, this report about Jesus, spread through the whole of Judea, and all the surrounding country. Before we go any further, let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we come to you, God, in need of being filled. God, we are weak. God, we are so easily distracted. God, we're surrounded by commotion. God, we're surrounded by the busyness of life. So God, I pray that right now you would come and open up our ears. God, open up our hearts. And God, would you please come and feed us now with your word. Feed us with the power of your gospel. Teach us, Lord. We ask you, we cry out for you, for your Holy Spirit to come and teach us, to feed us, to renew us, to restore us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see here, as this scene unfolds in Luke 7.11, it's important to note the context of what's going on here. So just days before Jesus enters this little town of Nain, we see Jesus coming into the city gates of Nain. Just days before this has happened, he's healed a well-respected, just kind of this high-profile centurion servant. So there's already a stir, there's a buzz in the air, a buzz in the atmosphere surrounding the person of Jesus, and Jesus is starting to gain notoriety. Jesus is starting to gain popularity amongst the people, and you can see it here. You can see it in the text. It says that crowds begin gathering around him. Crowds are starting to see Jesus, see what he's doing. They've heard about this miracle, and they're starting to follow Jesus from village to village. As the crowd following Jesus enters the town of Nain, they're met by another crowd. So you have these two crowds approaching one another. But the crowd that Jesus is approached with, it's a very different crowd than the crowd following him. It's a funeral procession. And as the two crowds meet, there in the middle of the hustle and bustle of activity, there in the midst of the commotion, There's Jesus in the midst of all, in the midst of everything, and he's confronted with a dilemma. He's confronted with a a difficult situation. He's confronted with brokenness. Which when I read this, 
that's my hope and prayer this morning, that, that this is something we can all relate to in some form or manner. Because how many times, just think about this, just stop and think about this, how many times just this last week alone, in the busyness of life, in the midst of your plans, in the midst of the commotion, in the midst of all the things going on, where you met with, where you, you were met with a need, you were met with a situation, a conversation, or maybe a relationship issue that was difficult to deal with. Maybe it was a family issue. Maybe it was something at work, the person a couple offices down. Maybe an issue came up with here, somebody at church or in care group. We're constantly being bombarded with these types of situations and dilemmas. Why? Because we live in a fallen world, like Derek talked about, like Derek preached last week. Last week, We live in a fallen world, so we're going to be confronted with the brokenness and these dilemmas, these situations that are in need of desperate rest- restoration. So think about those dilemmas. Think about those difficult moments. Think about those phone calls you receive. Think about those emails. Think about those conversations. Think about those difficult relationships. Think about those people you come across at work or at the park or at the grocery store or your neighborhood. You're presented with a painful or broken situation. So this morning, if we are the ones whose eyes have been opened to the power of the gospel and the redemptive work of Christ, How do we respond when faced with this type of brokenness and pain and people in need of restoration? What is the Holy Spirit in us calling us to do in these moments? Where do our our hearts turn? What does it look like? And that's what I want to look at Luke 7. What did Christ do? Let's look to Christ. So to start with, I want to consider four truths that we see when Jesus comes on the scene. In the midst of the dilemma, when he's presenting, Jesus is presented with a seemingly hopeless situation. What happens? What happens when the kingdom of God advances on the scene? Let's look to Christ. One of the first things we see when Jesus enters the scene is compassion. As the curtain goes up, We see two crowds as the scene unfolds. We see two crowds approaching one another. Like we just just talked about, there's a large crowd surrounding and following Jesus. And at the same time, he's met by another large crowd. But this crowd is full of loud cries and wailing and weeping and despair. So why all the weeping? Why all the despair? Why all the loud cries? Well, what had just happened is there was a widowed mother who had just lost her son. And it's important to note that the the culture and the context of this time, if you were a widow at this time, first of all, your situation would be pretty bad. If you're a widow, your husband obviously would would not not be there. And in that culture, um, the women didn't necessarily work, so they would have no way of protection, no way of earning income. They would be kind of left helpless and alone. So what would you do if you were a widow? Generally, what you would do is you would turn to your children. 
But what's even worse in this situation is this widowed mom, her only son, has died. So she was left with absolutely nothing. She was completely alone with nobody to care for her, nobody to look out for her, and nobody to provide for her. So as these two very different crowds approach each other, the very first thing we see is Jesus, the Eternal One, the Son of God. He's moved by compassion for this widowed, helpless woman. Jesus' eyes are turned toward this widowed mother whose only son is being led out of the city to be buried. A woman who would have been considered a nobody socially with nothing to offer except hopelessness and despair. And in in the midst of the commotion and the chaos, Jesus' eyes are struck by this woman. Jesus' heart is filled with compassion for this woman. Jesus stops what he's doing and his eyes are turned toward this widowed mother and his heart is stirred. To put it in in the negative sense, what Jesus does not do, he doesn't keep going on his way. Jesus doesn't think, you know what, man, I got to get into the city of of Nain. There's ministry opportunities in there. I have this crowd following me. We got to get in there. You know, Peter... John, can you do something about this funeral procession here? This wasn't on my plan for today. This wasn't on my agenda. That's not how Jesus responds, right? No, that's not how Jesus responds. He doesn't say these people are interrupting what I want to do. No, Jesus sees this widowed mother and he has compassion on her. His heart breaks for her. The literal translation here would read that Jesus' heart was moved by compassion. That his bowels or insides were moved moved with compassion. It's the idea that Jesus felt compassion from the very depths of his body for this woman who was helpless, hopeless, this woman who was a nobody. And it's important to take note here It's important to take note, who was the one stepping out of the crowd? Who was the one taking initiative to redeem and restore? It's Jesus himself, right? Jesus is not bothered by this situation. He's not moved by guilt. He's not moved moved by pressure or desire to please the crowds. No, Jesus is moved by a desire to do the Father's will. And his heart is filled with compassion. Amidst the chaos, the commotion going on around him, Jesus stops what he's doing. Think about that. He stops what he's doing. He steps out of the crowd and he focuses in on this helpless widow because his heart is filled with compassion for her. So when presenting with this when when presented with this dilemma with a seemingly hopeless situation we see first that Jesus stops what is what he's doing because his heart is pierced by compassion his heart is pierced compa- for, with compassion for this nobody woman 
The second thing we see in this dilemma, in this scene, in this broken situation, is Jesus acts with complete confidence and clarity. I, mean, I, want, you to, I want you to think about this for a second. Think about the scene unfolding here, because we've all been to a funeral, right? We've all been to memorial service. Um, in fact, just over a year ago, I know I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, um, there was a, a, a memorial service here just about a year ago, and there was a dead man laying just right over here. And it was an, an open casket um, memorial service. And it was the first time um, my daughters had ever seen like a, a real live actual dead person, or is that right, a live dead person in real life, like not on TV? Um, so we kind of had to walk them through that, and they walked up to the front, you know, and they saw it was um, Noel's Noel's grandfather, and um, we walked up to the front, and you could, I mean, you could tell it was obvious, you know, this man was dead. He was pale, his skin was waxy, everyone knew this man was dead. There was no breath in his lungs, there was no blood pumping through his veins, like he's dead, he's, he's dead, dead, no life in him at all. So think about the situation here. Jesus comes on the scene. His heart is moved by compassion for the mother of this dead man. Everyone knows, obviously, this guy's dead, right? They're in the middle of a funeral procession. And what does Jesus tell the mother of this dead man? He only says two things in this whole account. The first thing he says, he turns to the woman and he says, Do not weep. What were people thinking at that time? What is Jesus up to? What is Jesus doing? You have these two crowds meeting each other, and Jesus tells this dead man's mom, stop crying. Stop crying. And then what happens next? Jesus draws near to the men carrying the beer. He draws near to them, and then he touches the beer. It doesn't say that he touches the, the people carrying the beer. He doesn't touch the dead man. It says he, he reaches out and he touches the beer. And a beer would simply just be a, like a mat on poles. And you would see the dead body laying on top. They'd probably be buried in loose um, burial linens or burial cloths. And Jesus reaches up and touches the beer. He says, woman, don't weep. He walks over to the beer, touches the beer. Think about that. That Here's a dead man in the middle of a funeral procession. What were people thinking? You can almost feel, I read that, and you can almost feel the anticipation. All of a sudden, pro things probably got really quiet really fast, right? What is Jesus going to do? Who is this guy? Like, we heard about him. Didn't he just heal that centurion servant? Isn't he this guy from, from Galilee? Who is this guy? What's this guy up to? But with complete confidence and clarity in what Jesus knew his father had called him to do, what does Jesus do next? He starts talking to this dead man. Everything's silent. Everything's quiet. And then Jesus starts talking to this dead man. The reality of this is incredible. I mean, really, can you imagine being in the middle of a memorial service or a funeral and somebody comes up to the coffin and starts talking to the dead guy? It'd be pretty awkward, wouldn't it? Honestly, I think it would be awkward. I'd be like, I don't know what's going on here. This is crazy. But was Jesus ashamed? Was he afraid? Was he shy? Was he intimidated? 
Was he concerned what other people were thinking at that time? No. We see Jesus moves and acts with complete confidence in what his father had called him to do. The situation probably seemed uncomfortable. It probably seemed awkward. It probably seemed kind of mysterious to the onlookers, these crowds. Got real quiet. What's going on here? But to Jesus, who's confident in what his father had called him to, he's just being obedient, right? He's just doing what the father had called him to do. He's literally living in the reality of what it means to keep in step with the spirit and confidently, without hesitation, without doubt, without concern for the peripheral stuff going on around him, the commotion, the chaos, the crowds, Jesus does what he's been sent to do doing exactly the Father's will at that moment. The next thing we see, the next thing we see is a call. When the kingdom of God advances on the scene, when Jesus moves on the scene, the first thing we see is Jesus is filled with compassion. Next, we we see he's confident and intentional in what his Father had called him to do. And then we see Jesus has a call. There's a calling from death to life. There's a call that brings hope. Hope. There's a call that brings life and restoration. And I want us to really stop here and pause and think about this call. Consider this call that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Because out of the same mouth, just think about the words. It's the only other thing that we read in this account. The call. Think about this call. It's the same call out of the same mouth, out of the same breath that called the moon and stars and galaxies and plants and animals and everything created and uncreated into existence. Out of the same mouth that Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Out of that same mouth, Jesus calls to this dead human and he says to you, young man, I say to you, arise. And what happens when Jesus brings forth this call, when he proclaims this call out of his mouth? There's power, right? There's life. There's restoration. The young man, he sits up and he begins to talk. I've been reading this and studying this, and I'm curious to know what he said. You know, I was thinking about it. I was like, what is he saying? What's he, he just gets up and starts talking? What was he talking about? We don't know. When Jesus enters the scene, when the kingdom of God advances, what happens here in this situation? What happens to the brokenness? Life is restored. There's redemption. The broken things are made new. And then look what Jesus does next. He doesn't just stop there, but he gives the young man back to his mother. There's a giving back of what was lost. Not only is life given back to this young man, but there's a giving back of what was lost to the mother. Hope is restored. I mean, can you imagine the mother's feelings. If you're a mom, you probably can a lot better than I can. As a dad, I could understand, but as a mother who's hopeless and lost, can you imagine Jesus saying, here's your son. Here he is. Here's your son. The woman who was just moments ago weeping and helpless and hopeless, she's given back 
her only son. Life is given and hope is restored. The scene changes drastically, doesn't it? When Jesus comes on the scene. And just moments ago, what used to be a funeral scene, a scene that was filled with weeping and wailing and death and sorrow and hopelessness, now it's a scene that's filled with hope and life and restoration. Jesus calls life into this young man and a hopeless woman is restored her son. And not only that, but a relationship is restored. A relationship that was lost forever is now restored. Which brings us to the result. What happens next? Not only is there hope restored, not only is there life, not only is there restoration, but what's the What's the effect? What happens with the crowds? How do the crowds respond when God advances on the scene? Let's check out verses 16 and 17. It says this, Fear sees them all. Fear sees them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. What's the effect? There's a consuming awe. There's fear. There's God being magnified and a spreading of God's fame. You can see it in how the people respond, right? They were first and primarily struck with fear. And the same word here for fear, the the literal translation means that they were struck with fear or with terror or dread. That'd be a better way to to describe it. It would be terror or dread. It's the Greek word that's that's literally translated as phobos. Um, Am I saying that right there? Phobos? Phobos, thank you. I I was like, I'm hoping Eric's here. I went on the internet and I did the little, like you can hear the phobos, phobos, but... It's not the same when you hear it when the guy on the internet says it. but um, So, Fabas. But that's what they were literally, it could be translated that these people, the crowds, were literally seized with Fabas. The same word that we get arachnophobia, fear of spiders, or it's another one, acrophobia, fear of heights. That same word, they were struck with fear or dread. So it's not like all of a sudden, This big party broke out, which is kind of funny to think about, you know. Primarily, they were struck with fear. There wasn't a party. There wasn't a celebration. There wasn't immediate rejoicing or celebration. No, these people were actually afraid. They were taken back by the situation. They had a sense that there is something bigger going on. This isn't just an ordinary guy. This Jesus, he's not just an ordinary man. And then the people, even in their lack of understanding and their, even in their lack of knowledge of who this man Jesus is, they don't really get it. You know, we can read from, they think Jesus is a great prophet. They don't even really get what's going on, but they still understand the magnitude of it. They still proclaim, God's been with us. God's been here. This is an act of God. And as a result, The fame of Jesus spreads across the region. The people see this restoration of life and they spread 
the news. The kingdom of God advances. And just think about this. Just a little, uh, just a little bit of God's power is put on display in this situation. And the, and the people are consumed with awe. They're consumed with awe. And they spread the word, telling others about this man, Jesus, and the amazing thing that they witnessed. And before you know it, you know, even without social media, even without Facebook or texting or Twitter, Jesus is known across the region. Jesus is made known just by word of mouth, simple word of mouth, about these people who don't even get it. These people don't even really understand who Jesus is. So this morning, I hope for us as we go on that the story doesn't end here. And it shouldn't end here. This account isn't just a history lesson, obviously. I know you know that. It's not just a nice story of Jesus raising a dead guy to life. No. This story is a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is a reflection of God's heart and what he's done for us today. And that's what I want to further look at and bring to the surface this morning so we can feed on that, so we can remind ourselves of those gospel truths that we're so prone to lose sight of. So how do we see Christ's heart for us in this account that Luke gives us? Well, first of all, in the same way that Jesus had compassion on this mother who is hopeless and helpless, this mother who is left without nothing, Jesus has compassion on us when we were hopeless and helpless to save ourselves. And I'd like you to turn to Romans 5.8, please. In this Romans 5.8 through 11, it kind of parallels what we'll be talking about this morning. It brings it out very, uh, very articulately, very beautifully. Romans 5.8 says this. It says, But God shows us his, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, just like the testimony we see in Luke 7, who's the initiator in this situation? Who's the initiator? It's Christ. It's Christ showing his love for us while we were sinners, while we were stuck in our sin, while we were stuck in our rebellion. Christ initiates love and he dies for us. It's Jesus himself. When we're stuck in our sin and rebellion, when we were hopeless and lost, when we had absolutely nothing, Jesus had compassion on us. He comes down to earth to relate with his creation to share in our humanity, to face the same things we face every day. And Jesus' heart is moved with compassion. Just like Jesus looked at the mother and said, don't weep, Jesus comes down to earth. He has compassion on us and he says to us, don't weep, I've come. I've come to restore. I'm here. Don't weep, don't cry. I've come. I know you're stuck. I've come to restore the things that were meant to be. I've come to bring reconciliation. I've come to bring hope. Don't weep. 
the same way that Jesus was resolute and confident in stepping away from the multitude following him, he stepped away from the crowds. He walked up and touched the beer. Jesus is also confident and resolute in the way he loves us and the way he sets out to redeem us. Jesus exemplifies what it means to initiate love. Jesus is the definition. Jesus Jesus is the epitome of one who confidently and resolutely sets out to restore what's been lost and broken, no matter what the cost. Philippians 2.6, it reminds us that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The magnitude and the implications of this verse, Philippians 2, I mean, really, we could stop and think about that and meditate on that for hours. For hours. That the Son of God, think about that, the Word, the one to whom all things were created by and created for, He humbled Himself. He puts on human flesh with all of our pains, with all its aches and temptations, and then He obediently, humbly, confidently, and resolutely obeys all that the Father has for Him. He takes on our sin takes on our shame. He takes on the punishment that we deserve. And then he humbly, obediently, resolutely sets out and goes to the cross. He goes to the cross so that he could redeem and restore a hopeless people who are lost and broken. And then what does Christ do next? It doesn't end there. In the same way that the young man lay dead and cold and lifeless, in the same way, because of our sin and rebellion, our hearts were dead and cold and lifeless. There was nothing we could do to make our hearts come alive. There's nothing we could do to make our, uh, to be filled with life. There's nothing we could do to give ourselves hope. There's nothing we could do on our own strength and power to bring redemption, to bring reconciliation. Just like this young man who was on his way to be buried in the grave, that's what they were about to do, right? They were bringing him, it was a funeral procession, they were going to bring him outside of the city, and he was going to be buried in the ground. There was nothing anybody could do about that situation. There's nothing anybody could do to change the ending of the story, right? That was the fact. But then what happens? Jesus comes on the scene. Romans nine, Romans 5, 9 through 10. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, he reconciles us to God. 
He restores us. He redeems us. He takes our hearts that are lifeless and dead. He takes our hearts that were laying on the coffin, hopeless and helpless, headed towards destruction, headed towards the wrath of God, and he commands life. He says, by my blood, arise. And he commands life into our dead hearts. Jesus makes our hearts alive. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't stop there. Just like Jesus returns the dead man to his mother, Jesus returns us to the Father. Jesus presents us to the Father. Through Jesus' own blood, he reconciles us to the Father and restores the relationship that was meant to be. Jesus goes to the Father. He raises us up by his blood. And Jesus goes to the Father. He says, here, Father, look. They're cleansed. They're redeemed. I've washed them with my own blood. Relationship restored. Father, here they are, pure and blameless. That's what Christ has done for us. Relationship with the Father restored. Relationship restored. And that's where I want to end this morning with some application. I'd like to look at two things. And first, I want to look at how do we respond to what Christ has done for us? How do we respond to this gospel? How do we respond to this good news? How does a heart that's been reconciled and renewed and restored and made alive, how does a heart like that respond? Well, we can take our cues from the crowd in Luke 7, right? How did the crowds respond to this young man being brought back to life? The ultimate result, the ultimate result was that even though these people didn't fully understand who Jesus was, they didn't fully get it. But the ultimate result was they made much of Jesus. They were in awe of him. They talked about him. They told others what had happened. The crowds glorified God and the fame of Jesus spread throughout the region. It was just natural. The fame of Jesus just naturally spread throughout the region. But the crazy thing about this, I mentioned it before, the crazy thing is the crowds didn't even get it, right? They didn't even fully understand who Jesus was. They just thought that Jesus was a nice prophet. They just thought he was some prophet, right? They didn't really get it. They only had a small understanding who, of who Jesus was. Their eyes weren't open to the full resolution, re, re, resolution revelation of who God was. But the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes. We do know and confess truths about Jesus being the Son of God. We do know how Jesus has redeemed and restored and reconciled us to the Father. We do know that our hearts were dead and destined for wrath and destruction. And Christ comes on the scene and restores us. We do know that. So how much more how much more awe and wonder should there be in us? Romans 5.11 finishes with this in this section. 
Paul says this, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Paul says that once we were enemies of God, once we were objects of God's wrath, and now we're justified by Christ's blood. We're reconciled to God. We've been given life through Christ. And what's Paul's response to what Christ has done for us? He says, we rejoice. We make much of Jesus. We glorify and praise God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was just thinking about that this morning. You know, we sang the song this morning, um, Jesus, thank you. You know, we read a song like this. It says, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, once your enemy now seated by your table, seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. That's my prayer and longing for us at Providence that we would be so gripped by the message of the gospel that we'd so understand the power of God's for salvation that we'd be continually reminded of what we were, that we were just like this dead man laying on a coffin, powerless and without hope, and then Jesus made us alive and reconciled us to the Father, that we'd be gripped with that reality and say, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Like Paul, I long for us. That's my prayer is that, that we'd be gripped, we'd understand the power of the gospel so well that it would cause us to rejoice again and again and again because of the salvation of life we'd be given, we've been given, that there would be a longing, not just on Sunday morning, not just for 15 minutes during our day, but there'd be a longing to praise and honor God and make Jesus famous, make him esteemed in our lives, that when we speak, the joy of salvation would flow from our mouths. When we act, our attitudes and actions would make known the one who has the power to save not only us, but the power to redeem and restore those around us. Jesus, thank you. We'd be gripped by that reality. And the second and last thing I want to look at this morning is what is our response to others? What is our response to the things that are broken? Like we talked about, we live in a fallen world. We're going to be met with broken situations. We're going to be bombarded daily with the brokenness of the fall, with the sin. And what's our response going to be in the day-to-day, in the mundane of life as those who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that's us, the same power and spirit that was at work when Jesus walked up to a dead man and said, Arise, that same spirit living inside of us, if we are indwelt with that same spirit, what are the implications? 
What are the implications of that? How might we respond to those around us when there's discouragement, when there's complaining, when there's bitterness, when there's brokenness, when there's a seemingly hopeless situation, when there's a difficult relationship, when we're bombarded with these needs, when we're bombarded with the brokenness that surrounds us, that surrounds our communities, that surrounds our homes. How might the Holy Spirit in us come on the scene and change the ending of the story? If this account in Luke, uh, in Luke 7, if this account in Luke 7 is a picture of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit moves, and if we see how Jesus can change the atmosphere, can change things when he steps on the scene, where are we at? You know, and I'm not necessarily talking about this morning all, all these spectacular things happening and walking into funeral homes and raising people from the dead. You know, I, I'm not talking about that. It, it could happen if that's what the Holy Spirit's called us to at that moment. But what I'm talking about, what I'm referring to is what's our response? What's our attitude to the brokenness around us? Or to the brokenness around us? Do we feel the same compassion that Jesus felt? Our thoughts, our attitudes, where we turn to in those difficult or unsettling moments. Consider that carefully. It's not just a story, but consider what we see here in Luke 7 as a standard. Consider it carefully. Because I don't want to, this morning, honestly, I don't want to just be left with a nice story. I don't want to just read this and be like, man, that was really cool what Jesus did. And then like, and then just go about go about my day, go about my week, when I'm constantly bombarded. I can think of 10 different things this last week where I was, con where I was confronted with a difficult situation, a difficult relationship. I hope and pray when we look at accounts like these in Luke 7, when we see the power of the Holy Spirit, when we see the gospel being spread in the New Testament, that it wouldn't just be a nice testimony or a nice story. I hope it would remind us of the beauty of the gospel, but that it wouldn't just end with a reminder, a good reminder. I hope and pray that it would also, and I pray this for myself, I wrestle with this myself. I'm just being honest before you guys. I wrestle with this myself. I read this and I wrestle with it because I want it to expose and shine a light on the self-absorbed areas in my own heart, the selfishness in my own heart, that when I met with those broken situations, a lot of times, you know what, I'm just like, I don't even really care. You know what, this isn't what I planned for the day. This doesn't go according to my agenda. A lot of times, I don't even notice it, to be honest. You know, I can just kind of gloss over the situation. There's broken, hurting people in need of restoration, in need of redemption. I want Luke 7 to reveal those places in our heart where we cling to our own expectations, our own agendas, where we're tempted to prioritize and value what we do based on our own self-consuming desires. When it becomes my time, my schedule, my money, what are other people going to think about me? 
What are people going to think if I step out and start talking to this person? Or if I stop and pray for this person? Man, this person doesn't even really treat me very well. I don't want to be around them. This account in Luke 7 gives us a clear example and a standard of the reality of what it really looks like to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. It shows us that by our own means, it shows me that by my own own means, it reminds me that by my own means, by our own means, by our own efforts, when we lose sight of the beauty of the gospel, when we're not gripped by what the gospel has done for us, when we forget it, you know what happens? Rather than being the life-filled, hope-filled, joyful, obedient person that Christ exemplified in Luke 7, a lot of times, you know what? I end up looking a lot more like this widowed mother There's heaviness, there's anxiousness, there's confusion. I'm afraid of what people are going to think. I'm afraid of the future. And I don't have much hope to offer. When Jesus came on the scene, his heart was pierced. I want my heart to be pierced by the things that are broken. And the things that were broken, he made new. There was redemption. There was a giving of hope and life. And as a church, that's what I long, that's what I pray for. That's what when we gather to pray at our corporate prayer meetings, these are the things we pray for. These are the things we pray for that we say, God, would you help us in these areas? I pray that we'd be a church that looks to these accounts we read of, read of with Jesus and the way the Holy Spirit worked and moved and that we would pursue that as the standard, that that would be normal for us. Like Christ's example, when he was surrounded by the crowds outside that little town of Nain, when he was surrounded by the commotion, while he was surrounded by the chaos and the confusion and the weeping and the wailing, he was surrounded by it. When he was approached with this dilemma, when he was approached with a hopeless situation, with brokenness, when approached with a situation, when we are approached with a situation and a relationship in need of restoration, that we would be pierced by compassion instead of complacency. That we'd be gripped by the beauty and the power of the gospel that would overwhelm our hearts. That in those moments we'd we'd remember, Jesus, this is what you've done for me. Thank you, Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can redeem and restore this broken situation. Give me the words to say. Give me the call at this moment. Help me, Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit in those moments. We'd have a longing to see God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That our decisions, our priorities, the way we value our time and money, that would reflect this longing to see the lost and broken things restored. 
that everything we do, it would reflect this longing this, that we're gripped by the gospel, that we're so filled with the Holy Spirit that we long, that we're looking, that they just don't pass us by, that we're, that we're not just so distracted by what's going on around us, that we don't even think about it, we don't even notice, but we'd actually be looking, that our eyes would be open to the broken and the lost. And you know what? The broken and lost situations, you know what? We can start here in our own church. We can start in our care groups. We don't have to go far. I'm not saying we shouldn't go far, but we don't have to go far. Asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and fill us, to give us the calling, to give us the words to say that wherever we go, the redemptive power of the gospel, it would be evident to those around us so that ultimately, at the end of the day, ultimately, stories of God's grace, stories of God's mercy, stories of God's redemption, stories of God's reconciliation, that they'd be like an aroma, that they'd spread wherever we go, that they would pour from our hearts, that when we gather as care groups, as a church, it'd be evident it would pour from us. It would burst forth. It would pour from us. So let's pray. Let's pray for that this morning.